um, leading into the eventual rest, crucifixion, resurrection of Jesus. But on that day after he serves uh, what we, we now call the Lord's Supper, um, he gives a command. It's this new command that he gives that Maundy Thursday is named after. So uh, I'm going to pray, and then uh, we're going to continue worshiping together. So, uh, Father, I thank you so much for what your son has done for us, uh, how he became a human being. He lived the perfect life that we could never live, and then he died in our place, taking our punishment so that once and for all we could be made clean and sin-free before you. And then how he rose again, so that we could have new life, a life no longer lived for ourselves and in sinfulness, but lived for you. Uh, and I pray that we would spend this weekend remembering the gospel, uh, remembering the joy that we have because of your son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening.
All right. I, uh, since it's such a small group today, and since it is Monday Thursday where Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper, I'm just going to stand here today. Um, but uh, we're going to be in John chapter 13. So if you go ahead and turn there. Before we read that, though, I want to ask a question for you guys to think about before we dive into the text together. And that is this. If you were given the privilege of knowing exactly when you would die, what would you do with your last remaining days, right? Uh, and this is one of those typical questions like, okay, if you had one day remaining on earth, what would you do with that day, right? Would you, would you if you're a roller coaster junkie, would you try to squeeze in as many rides as possible? Would you travel to Disney World if you could? If you love traveling, would you try to book a, a, a trip somewhere to go see, see things really quick? Um, most of us would say that we would want to spend it with our loved ones, family, friends. Uh, and if we look at Jesus, and it, we'll see right at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus did have that privilege. He knew exactly when he was going to die. 
And how does he spend his last days? And it's, it's a very human way of, uh, of spending his last days. Don't get me wrong. Jesus had a purpose. Uh, and early in the Gospels, we see uh, where it says Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. And the idea is Jesus knew what he came here to do, and that was to die for our sins. And he knew his time was approaching, and so his last trip to Jerusalem, he was focused. Nothing would deter him from this mission. Right? And so even this supper, there is a purpose behind it, as we'll see with this last command he gives. And that, that is true. But at the same time, it's also such a human response. Jesus gathered those who, who were closest to him, those who he had spent all of his time with over the last several years, all the time he had invested in, his friends. right? And they are his disciples, that he is teaching them, he is he is uh, uh, challenging them to grow, and eventually he'll hand over his church to them to lead and to take forward. But we see in this text, as we keep reading through John, that they were his friends. He says that I now, I don't call you servant, I call you friend. And there's a theological truth to that. If we are followers of Jesus, we are his friend. But it's also very true. These are his friends who he spent so much time with, and this is who he wants to spend his final moments with. So I want to keep that in mind as we read, but if you're in John chapter 13, I invite you to stand with me as we read through this chapter together. John chapter 13, starting with verse 1, says this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put in, it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a bowl tied it around his a towel tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If we jump ahead, what you'll what we're, uh, what happens next is that Judas does betray him. Jesus calls him out, says the person who dips I, with me in this cup will betray me, and Judas does it, and he leaves. And right after he leaves, this is what happens next. When he had gone out, so starting in verse thirty-one now, when he had gone out, Jesus said, "Now is now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him." God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love. For one another. Father, 
I just want to thank you and praise you once again for the mercy and grace and glory you have given us in Jesus and his death and resurrection for our sakes. I pray that we would continue to worship you and that we would listen closely to the words of your son so that we might be transformed by them. I pray all this in the Son Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. Now, as I was reading uh, through this text and preparing to preach uh, on it to you guys this, uh, this time, one of the things that stood out to me is, is something you see right at the very beginning of the chapter. If you look at chapter 13, right at the very beginning, that first verse, it says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew, what did he know? He knew that his hour had come to depart from this world. So going into this meal, Jesus already knew what was about to happen. He knew he was going to get betrayed. He knew he was going to put on a sham trial. The people who praised his coming in on Palm Sunday are the same ones who were going to condemn him and lie about him and put him to death. And he knew he would die a painful death and then eventually rise again in three days. All, right, all of this he knew, right? We're supposed to know that going into this. But then if you keep reading, it's almost like it repeats itself. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot. So John here, as he's writing to us, through the Holy Spirit through John is, is getting our attention on this. One, Jesus knew what was about to happen. Two, Judas had already decided to betray Jesus, and Jesus knew that. Okay, But then it keeps going. It says, as we keep reading... Um, uh, that as he as he knows this, as he already knows what's going to happen to Judas, as he already knows what's going to happen to him, then he does what's next. So look closely with me. Um, during supper, so verse two, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things to his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. So what does Jesus know? He already knows what's going to happen to him. He already knows Judas is going to betray him. He knows that he came from God himself. He knows that he has authority from God. So keep this in mind. He has all authority at this moment. See, it says that right here in verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was coming from God and going back to God, so Jesus knows what's going to happen to him, who's going to betray him, how painful it's going to be, both physically and emotionally and spiritually. And he also knows that he has full control. Right? Now, thankfully, Jesus is not one of us because going into this weekend, having full control and full authority from God, I don't think I would have taken the same route as Jesus. Right? None of us would have. But, but here's the thing. Jesus loved us so much that he willingly went to his death, even when he had full control to stop what was about to happen to him. And it, it zooms in on, Jesus, uh, on Judas, and I think that's intentional here. We see that Judas is about to betray him. And we know Jesus knows he's about to betray him, and yet the next action he does even to Judas. What happens next? It says that Jesus rose from supper. So he was relaxed. He was just having dinner with his friends before he's killed. And he's going to be betrayed by Judas. And yet he rose from his supper. Why? Well, to wash his disciples' feet. Well, it, it is interesting. One of the things I didn't notice until uh, uh, so, um, this time around, it's, it's interesting how new things continue to pop up to you. But they were already down at the table, right? When is the time to wash feet? It's, it's interesting that Jesus chose this moment. Um, and, and it doesn't spell out why. I think it's, it's just Jesus knew that this was the time to teach this lesson. This was about more than just washing their feet. It was about teaching them how to uh, be his disciples, as we will see as we keep reading. But he rose, he put on this towel, and he washed his disciples' feet. And he made sure, in case they missed the point, he made sure to draw it out. He said, you call me teacher and Lord, and that's right, I am that. Right? 
He's not letting them say, oh, you're, you're something else. No, I am your teacher, your master, right? Masters don't do that. Servants are supposed to do this. And yet I am doing this to you. And the question is, why, right? Jesus is teaching them about how to be his disciple, what his disciples are supposed to do and look like and be. And what is that? Well, we already heard the commandment, right? You already heard the commandment. This new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. So to be his disciple, if we're known as his disciple, how are we known? It's by how we love one another. Now, how is that? Well, it's a very tangible love, right? A lot of people in our, in our society kind of get confused on that question. What is love, right? It's, they made a whole song about it, right? <laughs> no, no one knows quite how to define it. In fact, you can actually look up videos of people going around and ask people, what is love to you? And it's crazy the amount of answers you get and, and how bizarre they are, but most of them don't quite know how to define it. But the Bible does, right? The Bible defines it not as a dictionary, but as a person. It says, look at Jesus, okay? Whatever you see him do, that is what love is, okay? And, and that's how you know that you are a disciple of love, is if you love in the same way he did, right? And how do you do that? Tangibly, by serving even if you have a place of higher honor, you serve those that you are supposed to lead. As elsewhere in the scripture, it describes it this way. that Paul, writing through the Holy Spirit, challenges the church he's writing to, to outdo one another in showing honor. So what does it look like to be a disciple of Jesus? It is to not look at your own place, not look at to your own honor and receiving honor, but instead to rise from the meal, to put on a towel and to serve others in love. But it's not just serving others in love, it's serving who in love. And, the, and, that's, what, and that's what really stood out to me as I was reading this. The, the author almost seems to go out of his way to make us realize Jesus knows what Judas is about to do. And because of that, not despite of that, because of that, Jesus rises and he serves. And who does he serve? Even Judas. He doesn't go around the table and wash all his disciples' feet and be like, sorry, Judas, <laughs> this is not for you. No, he gets down and he scrapes Judas' feet from mud and he washes it clean. He loves and serves even Judas. Right? This should be strikingly clear to us because Jesus knows all the pain and all the agony, not just physical, but imagine the emotional pain of one of your friends, one of your close friends who has been with you all along the way, who you think is with you in the whole mission, right? I, I, Jesus knew he was going to betray him, but who is with him in this whole mission, who is his friend, who is close, who spent hard times with Jesus, and yet this is the one who betrays him. And yet this is the one who Jesus gets down and washes his feet and love and serves. I think that's intentional, though, because if we look at what Jesus is about to do, what is he about to do? This is the Passover meal for a very good reason. If we remember our Old Testament history, what is the Passover? Passover were when the Jewish people were a slave uh, people in Egypt. They were completely enslaved, all right? Now, how... God chose them while they were a slave people and decided to rescue them. So he does that by showing up and outshining every single one of the Egyptian gods, right? They have the God of the Nile, and yet God turns it completely into blood, right? They have all these other gods, and God sends locusts and frogs and everything else. And finally, at the climax, this, this human god that the Egyptians have, this pharaoh, God shows he's even more powerful than them. And so he that sends a plague that will, an angel that will wipe out every firstborn son in all of the land. And the only way to get through it is if you took a spotless lamb and together the people of Israel will to kill that lamb, take its blood, and put it over the doorpost. Only walking through the blood of the lamb were they saved from death. That should sound familiar to you if you're here for Easter, right? This is pointing ahead to what Jesus is going to do. That lamb was just a placeholder. We know that it, that lamb did not have the power to save people. Instead, God was pointing forward to a greater reality. And in fact, he was even pointing back, because earlier, before Israel was Israel, when they were just Abraham, 
God miraculously gave Abraham a son. He said, through this son, it's going to be a whole nation. And yet, when Abraham finally had the son, he said, okay, take that son and sacrifice it. So he took him. And he, as he's marching along the way, Isaac, his son, is like, hey, I don't see a sacrifice. Aren't we going to make a sacrifice? Right? And, and what does he tell him? He tells him, God will send a sacrifice. And what happens? Abraham, being faithful, even to the point of sacrificing his son, right, as he's taking the knife, God stops him. And he provides another sacrifice, a lamb. But it's the point ahead. You see, a lamb does not have power to save us as human beings. It never did. Instead, it was pointing ahead to what God was going to do. It was a placeholder for when God eventually does save humanity. Why? Because every single human being rebelled and betrayed God. He made us in his image. He didn't have to, but he loved us and made us in his image. He gave us authority of all of his creation that he just made. And what did we do with this incredible gift that God gave us? We betrayed him. We weren't content to rule with him. We weren't content to just bear his image. We wanted to be God's ourselves. And so we rebelled against God and we betrayed him. And, yet this, and what did that betrayal produce? Well, the only just consequence for the evil that humankind did is death. Sometimes we... we we tend to justify the evil that we do as human beings, right? We, we tend to say, eh, it's not that bad, and we can look at other human beings through history who committed these great atrocities. And I'm not saying that every human being is equivalent to your Hitler, right, or your Genghis Khan, or these other evil people. But what I am saying is that every human being has betrayed God. Every human being has committed such evil that the only just response to that is death. And yet, even though we betrayed him, he still loved us. How much did he love us? He loved us enough to send his own sacrifice, his very son, to come, to live the perfect life we could never live, and to die in our place, and for him to rise again forever, defeating death. So just like Judas, who betrayed Jesus, who was going to betray Jesus, and Jesus knew it, he still loved him. And so he rose, and he served him in love. And that brings us to us. How much does God love us, despite the fact that each and every one of us has betrayed God? Each and every one of us has committed evil against God, and yet, despite that, he still loves us enough that he sent his only son his only begotten son, to come and to die in our place. Which leads us to this commandment, right? How do you know that you are a disciple of Jesus? And that's this commandment. All the way in verse um, in, in verse 30, uh, through 34. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Let me ask you this. What's new about this commandment? Did they not command you to love in the Old Testament? No, of course they did, right? And in fact, Jesus, earlier on in his ministry, uh, was once asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he says, to love God with all that you are, all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. And all of the law is summed up in those two commandments. In other words, the Old Testament tells you to love, right? To love your neighbor. So what's new? Why does he call it a new commandment? Well, let's look more closely, because how are you to love? It says this um, in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, but how? Just as I have loved you. In other words, Jesus ups the stakes. Before, to follow the law, you just had to love your neighbor as yourself, right? Easy, right? How many of you, that's no problem. Love your neighbor just as much as you love yourself? No, no. <laughs> Not Can't do that? Me neither. None of us can. That's the problem. And yet Jesus still ups the stakes. He says, no, you're not just going to love your neighbors yourself. You're going to love them like I loved you. And in that, you know that even in loving yourself, you don't do a good job at that. You don't often love yourself well. You definitely don't love yourself as much as Jesus loves you. He loves you so much he came to serve you to live a life for you, to die 
in your place. Right? That's how much we are to love. We are to love just like Jesus does. And, and so to a certain extent, if we stop here on the story, this actually isn't very hopeful, is it? Because Jesus just gave us a new commandment, and we couldn't keep the old commandment, but all of a sudden he's given us a harder one. I want you to feel, feel that for a second. There's no way we can love like Jesus loves. And to top this off, yes, the disciples in that moment are being told to love like Jesus does. And they just saw Judas depart. So what should be in their minds? It probably is not yet. It probably won't be until later. But what should be in their minds? If I'm to love like Jesus, that means I have to serve. I have to lay down my own honor and serve, even in a humiliating, gross way, to those who will betray me those who will hurt me, those who are my enemies. And here's the thing. Isn't that exactly what God calls us to do? He calls us to love even our enemies. He calls you to love people even when they will only hate you. He calls you to bless people even when they will only curse you. He calls you to be kind to people even when they will only be cruel to you. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Why? Because that's what he was. He came to us to serve us, to love us while we were still his enemies. See, the love that Jesus is calling us to is not a natural love that is rewarded by other people's love. He's calling us to a supernatural love that can love even those who hate you, that can be kind to even those who are cruel to you that can forgive those who will never forgive you and will never ask for forgiveness. And I, I don't want to lessen that. That is hard. That is painful. It doesn't take long to think about people in your own life who have done nothing but treat you poorly just because they don't like you. And yet those are the people Jesus calls us to love. That is difficult. No, that's not just difficult. That's impossible. How do we do that? Well, that's obviously jumping ahead in the story, so I hope you don't mind a little spoiler. But here's the truth. Not on your own, right? The only way we can do it is because of what Jesus does next. And here's the interesting thing. At this point, all the disciples knew about how do you love like Jesus is to serve and to love in that way. But the very next day, in fact, just a couple hours later, Jesus would be arrested. He'd be betrayed by his friend Judas, arrested, put on a mock trial, tortured, beaten, humiliated, marched to his own death, and cruelly killed. And that's how much he loves. That puts a whole different spin on this commandment, does it? But in the very example that we're supposed to follow as his disciples is the way that we do it as well. You see, we cannot love like Jesus until he came and he died for us. And in that death and that resurrection, he accomplished what no Old Testament lamb and sacrifice could do. You see, the problem with the Old Testament is not just that you committed evil and you needed to do good instead, but it's that you actually loved evil and hated what was good. Everything that God created for us and for our goodness, we despise. Everything that perverted what God gave us and mocked it, we love. It was our hearts that had to change, and that couldn't be done until Jesus died for our sins, killing our sins, and then rose again to give us a new life. And then he sent his very spirit to dwell in us. Now, are you going to do this perfectly? Are you going to follow the example perfectly? No, not yet. Right? In just the other week, we read from Thessalonians that God will complete that work. Right? He hasn't yet, and so in hope we went long for that day where we will love like Jesus. For now... We continue to move closer and closer to that, and we love like Jesus loved, imperfectly. And so whenever we do it imperfectly, we turn to Jesus and we receive forgiveness and help to, to continue to love and to move forward, right? But this is what we are called to. We are not called to love other human beings so that they might love us back. We're not called to love because by doing so, we can get something, whether that's they can be one to Christ, or whether that's because they'll eventually become your friend, or whatever. We're called to love only for the sake that Jesus first loved us. And that is the new commandment that we are given. And so, as we go through Easter, I want you to hold this in mind. that my, Easter week is, is, you know, is not about do better. 
right? So I hope what you're not hearing is you need to love each other better. You need to try really hard to, to forgive those who, who have hurt you. I hope that's not what you hear. Instead, what I hope you hear is this. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you get to do that. Before, you didn't even have the ability. You couldn't even if you wanted to, and you definitely wouldn't have wanted to. But you have been given Jesus' very spirit, and he enables you to love like him. And that is one of the greatest gifts that we receive. We receive the forgiveness of our sins. We receive the love and friendship and adoption of God. And because of that, we are even given the ability to love like Jesus. And I hope you celebrate that as you think about Easter and what Jesus has done for each and every one of us. And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to close our time out in prayer, and then together we're going to celebrate communion, the very thing that Jesus had with his friends on that night. He then commanded his apostles that when they go and they spread his church, they're to repeat this. Why are they to repeat this? Because they're going to repeat that very moment of humanness and friendship where Jesus sat down with his friends. He showed them how to love and to repeat that until the day he returns. That way, every single Christian, until Jesus returns, together we celebrate the gospel. And so that's what we're going to do. So um, I'm going to pray, and then if you are serving communion, if you would come. Father, uh, I just want to thank you for all that you've done in your son Jesus. The example that he gave, and not just the example, because that would have been too much if he hadn't also given us the ability to be changed. I thank you for his sacrifice, his death. I also thank you for his resurrection, that we might have new life. And thank you for sending his, your spirit to us, Father, so that we might be changed in our hearts. Not just our actions, but our very desires are changed to be more like your son, Jesus. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, communion, as we're waiting for our communion service to come up. As I said, this is something that Jesus himself instituted. And so every Christian church from Jesus' day to our day and into the future till Jesus returns, have done this in celebration of what Jesus has done for us on this Easter weekend. Uh, so we're going to do that. We're going to celebrate that together. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to... This out. There we go. Uh, and take the bread We and wait until we come back up. Uh, we're going to eat the bread together because this is, is something that we do as a family.
In the first epistle to the church in Corinth, Paul says this, For I've received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that on the night uh, that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Take and eat. Father, thank you for this sacrifice of your son, that he would, he would forsake for a time the benefits and pleasures and authority that were given to him by right as the son of God, that he would enter into humanity and all the suffering that that entailed, and he would live a perfect, sinless life in our place for our sake. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until you come. Take and drink. Father, thank you so much for the sacrifice of your son that he, even though he had full authority, would willingly and lovingly march with his face towards Jerusalem, even though it meant torture and death. Thank you for the sacrifice that he made to atone for our sins so that we might be made right with you, restoring our relationship and adopting us into your family. Amen. You are dismissed.